station at KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone today. Uh, I'm Rob Starr, along with my good buddy right over here, Mr. Chris Davies, and today's our act show, so we're going to have our guest host. Uh, she, she's not a guest host. She's a regular host of the act show, the Singhia Bisconer. Uh, but just a couple things before we start. We have, a, a, actually, she has a great guest, all the way from the other part of another continent. The Down Under. The Down Under. And, you know, I found out over the years, because I always see these commercials for Foster's Beer. And, you know, they don't drink Foster's Beer in Australia. For The guys at our factory who work there told us it doesn't exist. So it must be some marketing point. Anyway, just... It's uh, just, Forex down there. It's That's for, the beer. Forex. Forex? I have to try that. I have to try it. Anyway, um, I was with uh, this week, I think, Chris, you know, I was yep. with uh, George Schmoke and uh, Miss uh, Boyer. Margo. Margo. Margo Boyer. Right, yeah. With her British accent, she's—I li- I like that accent. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty cool. And um, anyway, they're—they're—they have a—they're uh, from Landscape Communications, but they put on Landscape Architect, uh, Landscape Communications, uh, Landscape Contractor, all kinds of things. But they're also the uh, main people who put on the Landscape Expo event that's every year. This year it's going to be at Long Beach, but um, he wanted, he was going to call in and said he couldn't do it, so we made a little quick recording so we can tell people about it, and then we'll go right into our show. So hit it, Mr. Engineer. Hit it again. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great event taking place on October 10th and 11th, the Landscape Expo at the Long Beach Convention Center. If you're a landscape professional, then you're invited to attend and visit an exhibit hall with over 200 companies spanning more than four acres of exhibits or earn CEUs from 50-plus seminars and workshops. This October 10th and 11th at the Landscape Expo Long Beach, explore the Water Conservation Center featuring six on-point seminars and surrounded by the latest technology in conserving California's most precious resource. The Landscape Expo is also the best place to shop for trucks and tractors, with six major Southern California truck dealerships and 12 major brand equipment dealers, including Dodge, Chevy, Ford, Isuzu, JCB, John Deere, and dozens of commercial lawn care and arbor care equipment providers. Virtually all of the major brands of equipment you need is a landscape contractor or a maintenance professional. At the Landscape Expo, you'll also find every major irrigation brand, including the Toro and Irritrol product lines, as well as wholesale nurseries, outdoor tree care demonstrations, live equipment demos, and the all-new Landscape Design Center, featuring a full-size bocce court and dozens of design-oriented product vendors. There is a $20 entrance fee at the door, but if you register at landscapeonline.com before September 28th, we'll waive that fee. And if you plan on attending seminars, just type the water zone in the discount window and you'll receive 20% off all your seminars. Remember, the Landscape Expo, Wednesday and Thursday, October 10th and 11th at the Long Beach Convention Center. Visit landscapeonline.com for more information. And uh, just so everybody knows, we're going to be there. Chris and I are going to be there. Yeah, absolutely will. Doing that. So now we're going to turn, uh, tune it in to uh, Ingi, Miss Ingi. And she is just a wonderful person that I know. And I'm glad she does our egg shows. And I hope she never leaves. Good evening, Ingi. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Rob and Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. And you're right. We do have a fantastic guest tonight from halfway around the world or even more from Australia, uh, Julian Cribb. He's an author. Hails from 
I think, the western part of Australia. And he has written some dynamite books that are really big picture, and they're going to take us beyond California for sure. Uh, it, we're going to be talking about the age of food and an, an even lighter topic, um, surviving the 21st century. Uh, so I'm really excited about uh, Julian being with us this evening. Welcome, Julian. Thanks, Inga. How are you? I'm doing really well. I, I have to say, when I was in Australia in June, where I heard you speak and discovered you, I found that my niece was intrigued with the idea that I was 17 hours or like a day ahead, eight hours behind, and that spawned all sorts of conversations about, well, if you're a day ahead, can you, are, are you like Nostradamus and can see the future and look backwards and know what stock to buy the next day and then become wealthy overnight because you're ahead of us? <laughs> I'm sure you wish the answer oh, was that we wish. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we wish. But anyway, thanks for joining us. I know it's uh, Friday morning for you. Is, is that what it is? Or Friday afternoon for you in Australia? It's, it's Friday morning, yeah. And it, it's it is Friday morning. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. um, TGIF to you, and um, let's just get right into it. I'd like to, for our listening audience, I'd like to read your bio. It's very impressive. We'll just start with that. Uh, Julian, your career have has included appointments as a newspaper editor, a scientific correspondent for the Australian newspaper, director of national awareness for Australia's science agency, CISRO, and president of national professional bodies for ag, journalism, and science communication. Your work includes over 9,000 media articles, wow, and nine books, and you've received more than 30 awards for journalism. You're also a member of numerous scientific boards and advisory panels, and president of the National Professional Bodies for Ag Journalism and Science Communication. Your internationally acclaimed book, The Coming Famine, explores the question of whether we can feed humanity through the mid-century peak in numbers and food. So we're going to kind of be concentrating on that on the first half of the show because food is directly um, related to water, as we all know. And just so, you're, uh, so our audience knows, your books have included The Forgotten Country, Australian Agriculture, The White Death, Sharing Knowledge, Dry Times, Open Science, The Coming Famine, uh, Poison Planet, and your latest book, which I just finished reading uh, today, uh, Surviving the 21st Century which explores the central question facing humanity today. How can we best survive the 10 great existential challenges that are now coming together to confront us with our huge population explosion over the last 150 years? So welcome, Julian. Tell me, you know, before we dive into some of these pretty heavy topics, tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to this path of being a widely acclaimed author, speaker, and really you're an evangelist. Uh, an evangelist uh, for humanity. Yeah, well, it's really the fact that I'm a, I'm a journalist uh, and a newspaper editor from way back, particularly in the agriculture sector, reporting uh, on agriculture, talking to farmers, talking to scientists. I've been talking to scientists for over 45 years now, um, and I felt it was time to share with a wider population the sort of things that I have learned from scientists. Um, and in the last 10 years in particular, I have been finding more and more scientists coming up to me and saying, look, we don't know what kind of a world we're leaving our kids, but it looks pretty frightening. Um, I think most of us who are well informed are aware that 
the world of the future is going to be a pretty difficult and dangerous place. But the average person is not aware of that. And the purpose of my book really is to make them aware and to help people come up with solutions to the many problems that the overpopulation of human beings and the over-demand for resources that we're putting on the planet is creating for us. Yes, too many people and not enough land, air, water to really uh, feed us properly. So um, this, uh, this idea of yours, the age of food, to tell us more about that, that a food, revela- uh, food revolution is underway and that food will change, quote-unquote. So of course, here at the Water Zone... You know, uh, I like... Yeah, go ahead. I like to think that, you know, we had the Stone Age and we had the Iron Age and we had the Computer Age and we had the Age of Rock and Roll and all of that. We really are in the food age now. And the, the food age, it's not only the fact that, the, the, you know, the world menu is so diverse with so many different styles of food, there's so many different ways of producing it. Um, it it's, you know, every single media you, you go on, whether it's, you know, TV, the internet, whatever it is, you're hit with, a, with an avalanche of food. Uh, basically, people are talking recipes, they're talking diet, they're talking healthy food, unhealthy food. Uh, you're absolutely bombarded with um, food is actually the most important thing that we do. Um, the human jawbone has got more impact on the planet than the motor car, right? <laughs> it, it, it is enormous quantities of soil are washed into the ocean every year because of the agriculture that produces our food. Phenomenal amounts of water are wasted every year um, by the act of producing our food. And enormous quantities of, of poisons and pesticides are sprayed all over the planet every year uh, it, to grow our food. So, you know, it, it is unquestionably our biggest impact on the earth. And we need to become more aware of it if we are to buy food that is sustainable and healthy and to shop wisely, in other words, so that we create a healthier, more sustainable planet. Isn't uh, food production the uh, largest consumer of energy on the planet as well, or a third of it, or a half of it, or something like that? Uh, probably around about a third. It, it, it certainly produces about a third of the world's carbon emissions, which means that the, the act of growing food is destroying the very climate that allows it to grow food. So that, that, that's where we have a real worry. So we're emitting all of these um, carbon uh, you know, from, from fossil fuels, from pesticides, from land clearing and things like that. We're emitting all this carbon into the atmosphere, which is warming the planet, and it's moving the earth out of the sweet spot in which agriculture arose, the stable period called the Holocene. That is now extinct, and we're moving back into a very dangerous and unstable um, part of, you know, epoch, really. And if you think about it, you know, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Florence, Superstorm, Sandy, these are the, the kinds of things that are coming down now as we emit more carbon. So food production is going to become dangerously unstable as we advance into the middle part of the century. And that is a problem that we've got to solve. We, have, we can solve this, but we need to start thinking hard about it now. Yeah, that is what's refreshing about your writings, is that you're not just a doomsdayer, you know, rather you, you do suggest solutions. So... Tell us about the five uh, that you cited in this particular lecture on the age of food, and um, I'll just let you run through them, uh, because they are, you know, they, they, they do propose 
solutions to these issues that you just spoke of that, you know, the last 150 years, we have way too many people, the climate is changing, you know, the, the, the age in which our agriculture evolved, the Holocene, um, that temperature regime is, is now changing. Um, so we really have to move to something different. So tell, tell us about what these uh, five things are that's going to help us out. Well, uh, think for a moment about a city, a city like Los Angeles, a city like San Francisco, Sydney, Australia, London, uh, Paris, you know, any, or Shanghai, any of the big cities of the world. Collectively, those cities are gulping down 14 quadrillion calories of food every single day. And they are also throwing away, using and throwing away, one and a half million cubic kilometres of fresh water. So cities take this enormous quantity of nutrients in and a whole lot of water in, and then they just chuck it down the sewer pipe very often into the ocean, where we will never see it again, either of those. Now, we know the world is becoming desperately short of water. There are going to be water crises all over the place in the coming 20 or 30 years. Um, so we can't afford for our cities to throw away all the water and all the nutrients that they currently do. So we need to build a city that reuses the water and the nutrients, and it can do this with many ways. There are many high-tech ways of producing food where you can recycle the nutrients and the water that we are currently wasting. So it's really a case of inventing, reinventing history now because we used to recycle these things uh, a long time ago. We've, we've kind of lost the, the, the habit of that in the 20th century. So, you know, if you think about, you know, L.A. or San Francisco or somewhere like that, think about those cities. Instead of flushing their water out into the ocean, flushing their nutrients out of the ocean, recapturing those things and reusing them to produce food, then you will have sustainable food system. That's the first one, recycling. The next one, we really need to get over this idea that you can grow food using poison. I mean, I know we need herbicides and insecticides to control pests in crops, but that is basically a 20th century solution to a 21st century problem. We cannot go around poisoning the planet the way we are at the moment. Uh, you know, we're, we're finding um, these toxins in, in the, you know, the blood of infants that are newly born. We're finding them in the milk of nursing mothers and things like that. We can't go on poisoning the world's children at the rate we're doing it. So we've got to come up with a clean, sustainable way to grow food. And lots of those do exist. So the, first, the next thing is really is to get off this chemical kick that we've got in our agricultural systems and move on to you know, more organic systems that will protect the health of the human race. Um, the next one, really, uh, sustainability. We can't go on farming by cutting down forests. We can't do what they're doing in the Amazon and expect the world not to end up with terrible mess. So we have to find ways of producing food that don't involve large areas of land. Okay? Like the, the great biologist, D.O. Wilson, says we've got to give half the world back to the animals and plants that we have presently destroyed uh, if we are you know, not completely you know, devastate the environment that we rely on to live ourselves. Um, the next one is new technology. There is a raft of new ways to produce food coming down the line. Uh, you know, vertical farms, uh, biocultured meat, uh, all sorts of ways of producing food highly intensively but with very little land and very little water. So there's a lot of technology in this space now, and California is one of the leading places in the world 
for these new um, ways of producing food. There's a lot of great ideas, you know. It's like Silicon Valley all over again, except in food, not in computers. So that's a really important thing. And so really we're going to see a food system in, in the future where about a third of the world's food is produced in the cities, about a third of it will be produced on farms, but they're ecological eco-farms, basically, that are, that are sustainable and they're not damaging their landscape. And about a third of it will come from aquaculture. And aquaculture is booming, but we're going to farm fish in a whole lot of different and new and high-tech ways. Well, that sounds like a pretty good roadmap um, going forward, a third in the cities, a third on sustainable farms, and then aquaculture. So... For our listening audience, give us an idea of what growing food in a city is going to look like. That's probably hard for people to imagine uh, if they're not familiar with some of these high-tech solutions. I've seen some of them, you know, out on the farm. In fact, in Australia, uh, you have some really high-tech strawberry culture systems that I hadn't seen anywhere else that were very intriguing, very high production, also requiring high, high investment, though. So talk us through a little bit about the economics of how can we afford these higher-tech ways of growing food, uh, more intensive and so forth. I suppose it has to do with um, offsetting the cost of what we're currently doing. <laughs> so uh, tell, uh, help, us, help us envision how we're going to grow food in the cities. Well, uh, you can grow food on your balcony if you live in a, a tall apartment block, um, and people are developing micro-farms, which, which you can put on your, on your balcony. Um, IKEA, you know, the, furniture, the Swedish furniture company, has developed uh, a sphere that you can put in your living room that will grow all the herbs, fresh herbs, and, and salad vegetables that you need. So there are little forms of food production that are like that. And then you've got, um, you know, the farms on the roofs of buildings, uh, such as you have up and down the Hudson River in New York right now. Um, you have farms that are inside buildings, such as they have in Holland, in Iceland, in Canada, and especially in California as well. For example... Uh, the, the airline Emirates just spent $50 million building a vertical farm that is designed to produce 225,000 airline meals every single day. Wow. So, you know, these, these, so these things go from the very small, the micro, the do-it-yourself, people farming, you know, on, on road verges and under bridges and things like that in, in the city to the macro, where you have Jeff Bezos, the, the, the owner of Amazon.com, talking about putting uh, vertical farms into 500 of the world's top cities. So, you know, this, this is going to be a food revolution like none other, like nothing since the 18th century, in fact, uh, where food moves off the farm and goes into these urban high-tech things. And, and then you've got the biocultures I mentioned before, which is basically meat grown from animal stem cells. Um, it, it's real meat, but it just never went blue. Uh, so so <laughs> you, you can produce real meat for hamburger, for sausages, frankfurters, that kind of thing, it, but it'll come out of a big steel vessel. Uh, it won't take up much space and it won't use a lot of water, but it will be real meat and it will be part of the, the snack food industry, you know, that we know and love for meat pies and, and, and uh you know, sausages, I mean, you don't really know what's in a sausage anyway, do you? You know, you don't, right, you don't dare right. ask. That's kind of scary, actually. <laughs> but, but, but if it's meat produced from, from embryo stem cells, as I say, it's real meat, it's healthy, it's safe, um, So and, and it can be produced, you know, on a fraction. 
fraction of the space with a fraction of the water and for a fraction of the price. Uh, it doesn't involve massive feedlots. It doesn't involve huge acreages of, uh, of feed grains and things like that. So, you know, this is going to completely transform the nature of the food that, that we're eating at the moment. So in 50 years, we may be eating hamburgers that were um, cultured, actually, from stem cells, or uh, I know there's a trend with people like Impossible Foods and uh, other similar companies that are really recreating a, a, a pretty similar meat taste just with plant-based products. So some of those will still need to be grown traditionally or hopefully more sustainably, but the essence of where the, the material actually came from is going to be much different, huh? I think you'll see it within 10 years. 10 years? Uh, it's, it's coming much faster. It's like, it's like the, the renewable energy revolution. Slow start, you know, bumbles along for a while, and then suddenly the rocket takes off. Yeah. Uh, these new methods of producing food are going to skyrocket in the 2020s and the 2030s, simply because... Food itself is unsustainable. We cannot feed the world growing food by the same methods that the ancient Romans used, which is what we're trying to do currently. Now, broad acre, single crop agriculture is not going to work out when it destroys the soil, it wastes the water, and in a hot, climate-challenged world. That's just not going to be the way we do it in future. So all these other things are coming down. So think of the energy. Think of renewable energy. Think of all that wind and solar that you're putting in in California and translate that to food, okay? So this is the renewable food revolution and it's coming fast. Wow, pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Okay, one more topic before we go to break. Your idea of rewilding is related to a topic that we've recently discussed on the Water Zone with University of California's Dr. Glenda Humiston regarding the working lands concept. In other words, Optimizing the ecosystem services our farms, forests, rivers, oceans, and native landscapes provide the planet and humanity. You just a few minutes ago talked about kind of repurposing half of the planet to rewilding. Walk us through that. How is that going to happen? Okay, well, that proposal comes from the world's greatest living biologist, E.O. Wilson. He's a professor at Harvard. Uh, and he has written a book called Half Earth. And he says that if we want to save the creatures that we are, and the plants and the trees that we are currently exterminating, we are going to have to give half the world back to nature. Now, the bit that I've added into that is that if we are able to produce our food uh, by aquaculture and by city farms, as well as by ecological farms, then there are, we're going to be able to do that. That's going to be quite feasible. But we need to start paying farmers to actually look after the landscape. Now, at the moment, farmers look out after the landscape and the wild animals out of their own good nature and out of their own hip pocket. I think that's a very unfair. We're expecting them to be the stewards for the planet, um, but not to, uh, you know, not to charge us anything. I think we need to start paying farmers as the stewards of the earth. Farmers and indigenous people, like the North American Indians, the Aborigines in Australia, the Sami in Scandinavia, and so on. We need to start funding these people to restore the wild world. And at the same time as we're contracting our farms, we can contract our farms to the best areas of the world, the most fertile soils, the most benign climate, and so on. Instead of farming the, you know, the, the, the vulnerable uh, edges of, of, of the agricultural zone, we can contract it and we can replace that agricultural production with food grown in cities and on fish farms. 
Okay. Uh, that sounds like something that is doable, and uh, if <laughs> hopefully the world's populations can buy into that. You're an Australian, we're Americans. Do you think that do you think that most people think that these problems are something that is somewhere else and isn't really here at home, and that people you know aren't going to have to change all that much, or do you think that people are getting the message, especially the millennials? I think the younger folks. Maybe uh, I, I think that the, the older people, thoughtful older people, people with a scientific background, grandparents who are worried about their grandkids, and millennials who are growing up inheriting a world that is way worse than the ones their parents inherited. Uh, those are the people who are concerned now, and I think governments worldwide are letting them down. Okay, They are not taking action soon enough, and we are going to see more hurricane Florence's as the wake-up call for more big fire seasons like you've just had in California and we're just about to get in Australia. Uh, those are the writing on the wall, uh, that, that we are not managing the planet well and we need to start improving. We need to lift our game, basically. Um, so, yeah, there is concern. I don't think there's real concern or real fear yet, but that is coming as, as a succession of these hammer blows increases. So is the idea of the year of food and the age of food uh, really a um, really an outreach and an educational uh, effort? I guess it is. I mean, food is driven by the consumer, okay? It is consumer demand in the supermarket and in the farmer's market and things like that that, that sets the price of food and that tells the farmers what to grow. Okay, we need to educate the world's consumers to start buying food that is sustainable, not unsustainable food, and healthy, in other words, food that doesn't kill them. Because, you know, something like three-quarters of Americans now die by their own hand, which is the hand holding the fork. That means three-quarters of Americans die from a food or diet-related disease. You know, heart disease, cancer, they're all connected to food. You, you desperately, we desperately need to transition our diet away from this, this toxic industrial thing back to a healthy, sustainable, fresh diet. And there's lots of farmers very happy to do that, but they're not getting the consumer signal. So the age of food and, and the year of food in all the schools, junior schools on the planet is all about educating the consumer to demand the right kind of food, both for the planet and for themselves. Well, once again, the power of the dollar. Uh, you, you say that we can, uh, we can implement change uh, by shopping correctly, and I guess that's... Uh, how it's always been. We, we really can go from traditional to organic. That wasn't, organic wasn't even in the vernacular 30 or 40 years ago, but consumers wanted it. We now have it. I guess we can change again as consumers demand it with their dollars. All right. Well, Rob, I think we can go to commercial break and then come back to discuss the second topic, surviving the 21st century. Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited about the uh, vertical farming. I've seen seen that in action in, uh, in Seattle, Washington. They had this industrial uh, warehouse uh, with really tall ceilings, like 30 feet high, and they had these tubes uh, uh, going straight up, and they were growing stuff like you wouldn't believe. They had simulated uh, sunlight with special LED lights. It was, it was incredible of, of how much they could grow in this space versus if it was on horizontal land. So very yeah. apropos, very interesting, and I like that a lot. So anyway, we're going to go off to a commercial, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. So stick around, second half, coming up. Welcome back to the 
second half of the Water Zone show. We have Mr. Julian Crimp from all the way from Australia. Can I ask just one quickie question, Inge? Yeah, yeah, please. So, uh, Mr. Crimp, just just curious. As I said, I've been to some of these uh, vertical uh, farms. farms. But do you notice or do you, do you know if it cuts down on diseases that they get out in, in the regular lands when it's exposed to everything versus being in an indoor controlled environment? Yes, you can have... Uh, in an indoor-controlled environment, you can have phenomenal crop hygiene. When you can keep out all the bad bugs that are going to eat your crop, for example, it, uh, you know, as long as you're observing very high levels of quarantine and hygiene within that farm, right. um, you can control most of the fungi and things like that uh, as well by changing the, the atmosphere and things. So, yes, um, a lot of these farms are, are zero chemical. Um, the ones that I've seen in, in for example, in Europe and uh, uh, the ones I'm hearing about in the Middle East, they're, they're intending to, to produce the food without any form of chemicals. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate that. It, it, very interesting. I'm glad you're on the show. Inge, back to you. Yeah, yeah thanks. Um, yeah, we're going to move now from uh, talking about food to an equally uh, heavy topic, uh, Surviving the 21st Century, which is the title of Julian's latest book. He's written nine books and Surviving the 21st Century. Humanity's 10 Great Challenges and How We Can Overcome Them are what we're going to talk about the second half of this show. And I suppose that we need to survive the 21st century in order to worry about feeding ourselves. So they're very well linked together. (laughs) So, Julian, you've written that this is the greatest question facing humanity today and that there are 10 major existential threats. Please walk us through these, and just for our listening audience, spoiler alert, um, don't freak out. There are solutions, and that's what's so great about this book, is that it's not a doomsdayer book. It has solutions, but it does um, very eloquently and with lots of, lots of facts um, lay out that there definitely are some threats to our current um, situation. So tell us about them, Julian. Okay, well, uh, the real issue, we have an existential emergency which means that we're going to have difficulty as a species, certainly as a civilization, surviving this century. And this is not because of any one major threat, say nuclear weapons or, or uh, climate change or something like that. It is because of 10 that are all coming together at the same time. Now, those 10, I'll, I'll just list them. Uh, first of all, ecological collapse. You know, if you wreck the environment, you won't be able to live in it, basically. Uh, resource depletion. We're running out of an awful lot of things uh, that are that are vital to our survival, particularly water, soil, and timber. Um, weapons of mass destruction, well, we know all about those. Uh, climate change, I think we, a lot of people would be familiar with the arguments there. Global poisoning is the extent to which we have uh, distributed toxic chemicals across the entire Earth. You know, think of the, the great Pacific plastic garbage patch and things like that, but also think about what's in your food, your air, from, from uh, you know, urban pollution and so forth, and your water. There's food insecurity. Um, you know, America may be secure in its food supply, Australia may be secure, but there's lots of places that aren't food secure, and that needs to be fixed or we're going to see wars. Um, population, we're still expanding the world population. Not growing as fast as it used to, but it's still way beyond the capacity of the Earth to support a human population at current levels of demand. Um, and, and, of course, we've got major cities growing up. You know, you know, there's not one major city on the planet that can feed itself. So what happens if the trucks don't arrive one day? You know, that city starves within a few days. 
So we're, we're looking at issues like that, pandemic diseases, they're, they're related to food scarcity and so on. And plus, we're unleashing a whole lot of new technology like artificial intelligence, um, universal surveillance and things like that, about which the public has no control whatsoever. And we really don't know what the consequences of doing that are. Some very wise people, uh, you know, Mr. Musk, Mr. Gates, uh, Stephen Hawking, the British businesses, have warned us about this, and we need to start heeding their warnings. So the issue that I'm raising is that we've got these 10 things coming together at one time, and we, if you try to fix them one at a time, we're never going to fix them. Because you fix one existential risk, and what you do is you make another one worse. So we need to fix all 10 of them together at the same time. And that's what I'm basically writing about, how we solve these problems, both as a species and also as individuals. And you, uh, you failed to mention the last one, at least on my list, which was really interesting in my view, the self-delusion uh, risk that people just are kind of sleepwalking towards disasters. So... So uh, tell us more about the solutions that you're outlining in your book, um, especially the ideas about energy and water and the circular economy and the creative economy, uh, to name just a few. Yeah, well, look, uh, I mean, California is in the absolute world bow way with energy, when it comes to energy. Most Californians and a lot of Australians know that we have to get rid of fossil fuels, and we've really got to do it in the next 10 years. If we don't do it in the next 10 years, then the carbon we have put up in the atmosphere is going to wreck the climate for centuries to come. So basically, you know, we, we're on a very short fuse with, with regard to that. But, you know, it's, uh, things are happening. Things are happening very, very fast. Uh, very encouragingly, we're seeing all this renewable energy. And that's the kind of the style of thing that's got to happen in all the other areas. We've got to stop, you know, spreading poison all around the planet. Um, we have got to stop cutting down forests. Uh, we have got to develop a food system that is sustainable. So the solutions in the book are that there's nothing there that will shock or surprise anybody. Um, but what is really critical is the sense of urgency about these things. We've got to start acting as a species, and we've got to start thinking together as a species about how we solve these questions. Yes, and one of the things that you talked about, too, was um, algae, al algal um, fluids to uh, derive our energy from. Tell us a little more about that. Well, look, uh, algae have been turning sunlight into oil for, uh, for the last two billion years. Um, they're very, very good at it. Uh, the fossil oil we get out of the ground is, in fact, just dead algae. Um, if we want totally renewable, totally sustainable source of, of transport fuel, all we have to do is grow it in algae. And there are lots of, lots of algae farms through the United States, um, in the Middle East, in India, uh, around the world, Australia, things like that, that are experimenting now with producing fresh solar energy in the form of oil made from algae. And if you do that, it, it would only take an area the size of, say, Borneo to grow the entire world's transport fuel supply. Or an area you could produce the whole U.S fuel supply that's necessary in an area the size of Maryland. So, you know, this is a, this is a great solution. It gets us off the fossil fuels. Algae uh, reabsorb the carbon dioxide as they're growing, so you have a climate-neutral way of putting fuel in your motor car. Okay. Uh, that's another great idea, and one that I had not uh, 
known very much about until reading your book. So algae technology. And how do we grow this algae? You grow them in a pond, which can be salt water. Uh, you use your waste supplies from your city to feed them, and you give them lots of sunlight. So anywhere that's sunny, like the southwest of the United States, like the central Australian desert, like the, um, the Arabian Peninsula, they're ideal places for growing the algae. And if you grow the algae to make oil, the other half of the algae is, is, is protein and carbohydrate. You can feed it to cows, you can feed it to humans, you can feed it to, to other animals, and you can feed it to fish. So, so algae farming is going to be one of the big takeoff industries over the next 30 or 40 years. Okay. Well, there's, um, maybe, maybe that's not um, seeing yesterday because you're in tomorrow, um, but you're seeing tomorrow and maybe we can invest and, and uh, uh, you know, behave appropriately. And one of the things you're saying is that people's shopping habits can actually uh, elicit great change. Tell us how an average consumer can use the power of the dollar to help us survive the 21st century. Yeah, well, at the moment, the power of the dollar is going to destroy all the things that we depend on. So it's going to destroy the climate, it's going to destroy the water supply, it's going to destroy the, the quality of the food. If we just allow the dollar to, to, to ride around. If, however, consumers start buying in an informed and educated fashion, uh, they start choosing foods that are sustainable, that don't waste water, that don't waste soil, that don't want to use a lot of chemicals. Then the supermarket very soon gets the signal, and the supermarket is not going to try and sell stuff that, you know, the consumers don't want. So it really is all down to consumers. The governments are never going to fix it. The governments are in bed with the giant chemical corporations and oil and coal corporations. Uh, and, and they're really not going to... They're not going to be bothered to try to fix this problem. Uh, it has to be fixed by the individual. And the individuals, us consumers, are sharing this knowledge worldwide at the speed of light on the internet and in social media. That's the really exciting thing. We are starting to pass knowledge around amongst us. Yes, you talk about that quite a bit, that the internet and social media is definitely one of the solutions that... You know, just like a uh, baby in its second trimester um, starts to have all of its separate pieces connect and starts to be a sentient being, that you make the parallel that, you know, human society today is now starting to connect and we're becoming, you know, like a, uh, uh, like a world species. Tell us a little bit more about that and how the Internet can help us. And then maybe some of the dark side of that, you know, the thinking machine, sometimes Everybody thinking alike and having thinking machines can be a danger, too. Right. Well, look, uh, I mean, we've been having discussions about survival since we sat around the campfire on the African savannah a million years ago. Okay. Yeah. We've, been, we've been thinking about what, how we can survive, how we can stop the leopards eating the kids, all of that sort of stuff. Right? We're still having that discussion about human survival now, but it's taking place, as I say, in real time, on social media, it's thousands of people around the world. In fact, half the world population is on the internet now. And by the mid to late 20s, uh, the whole world population will be on the internet. So there will be a, a live discussion by the entire human species about how we survive, how we solve our problems together, rather than, you know, competing and, and, and uh, you know, doing one another uh, injuries. So, so basically, we're, we're starting to see for the first time 
a discussion taking place at species level. So we're identifying problems, problems like climate and toxicity and so on, uh, or food scarcity or something like that, and we are also identifying and sharing the solutions to those things. So this is happening very fast, but I think that renewable energy is a classic example. If renewable energy had happened back in the 1980s, there wasn't the internet there for the discussion, to air the discussion about what a great thing renewable energy is. It wouldn't have happened. It didn't happen back then, even though, you know, there were, there were windmills and what have you back then. It has happened now because the discussion is live around the planet among caring, intelligent people. So, so this is a very exciting moment in human history. We're evolving into a creature that can think not only as individuals, but also as a species. So this is, this is a huge moment in human history. Um, and yeah. we just need to take advantage of it. Yes, and you're, you're also talking about listening to and, and uh, uh, maybe subscribing to a different way of thinking of half of the people on our planet, the women, and how less like traditional males, they like to secure the human future. Women must lead in business, politics, religion, and society is what you have written. Tell us a little bit more about your ideas there. That uh, the six, you know, the success that we've achieved to date have has mostly been driven by men, but our survival for the future will depend on us probably thinking a little more like women. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, look, women do not start wars. As a rule, it's very very hard to find any women leaders who started a war. Um, they, they, they may have been involved in them, but they've never actually started. It's very hard to find women who've, who've clear felled forests, who've ploughed up the oceans and emptied them of fish, who've uh, degraded entire landscapes uh, with large machines. You know, women just don't do that. Women tend to think about the next generation and the one after. They think about their kids and their grandkids. And so they have a slightly more conservative view of, of how you go about doing things. Now, men are great at fixing problems, Okay. We, we generally, us men, we generally use either weapons or, or big machines or, or chemicals to fix the problem, and we say to hell with the consequence. It's not until later that we discover that this has destroyed the very system we were look, trying to protect, or it's released a whole lot of uh, cancer-causing chemicals into, in, you know, into the surroundings. So men have this kind of, you know, fix it now, pay later sort of mentality. I believe that that is going to lead us into a very dark place if we allow it to trump. So we need women to become the leaders to a safer place of our entire species. And that means women taking the lead, not just in politics, but in religion, in business, in every, in our social institutions, in every aspect. And I'm not just talking about one or two women. I am talking about a majority of women in all of these areas because we need that kind of long range look after the grandkids thinking now. Well, I think uh, our upcoming election has more women running than uh, ever before here in the United States, and uh, maybe that's happening globally, too. You, you've also written that businesses need to change from, uh, you know, what used to be kind of a longer view to somehow a change in the last uh, 50 years or so where CEOs were you know, pretty much purely compensated based on short-term results, have kind of 
uh, wreaked havoc on on the environment, as you were saying. You know, we, we get the result now, we solve the problem now, and the heck with the consequences. So how are businesses going to change? And, and maybe more women in business will help that? Yeah, well, you, you need to change businesses by changing the buying habits of consumers. It's as simple as that, because, all right, you might be able to regulate the behaviour of businesses in the United States, but you can't regulate the behaviour of businesses in China or India or, you know, some Eastern European country. The only way you can control them is by consumers demanding products that are safe, sustainable and healthy and refusing to buy products that are dangerous, unsustainable and unhealthy. Once they get the bottom line signal that, you know, that those businesses will have to follow suit, they're never going to be controlled by regulation. They have to be controlled by, by money because money is what makes the world go round, basically. Um, the dangerous thing is that we have too much money washing around in the world economy, and we have a finite planet. So we have an infinite amount of money and a finite planet, and those two things don't really go well together. Yeah, that was a fascinating uh, concept uh, that I read in your book today, that, you know, money is basically a belief system, and, uh, yeah, there's there's uh, infinite supply of it, but it buys resources that are not infinite. They, uh, you know, there's a finite amount of resources, so we really have to move to recycling our resources and making money in different ways, huh? Yeah, I, I think we should change the nature of the world currency. At the moment, the world currencies are just a gambling chip used by a lot of speculators who don't really care about the human future. Um, if you cast your mind back to American history, once upon a time, the US dollar was valued on the basis of the amount of gold in Fort Knox. I think we need to do a similar thing for, the, for a world currency. I think we need a world currency that reflects the current state of resources on the planet. So that if we cut down too many forests or we pollute too many rivers and lakes and things like that, your currency dwindles in value and your home dwindles in value. And, you know, but if you look after those things and increase them, then the world currency increases in value and the world's wealth increases in value. So I, I think we need to actually go back to that concept of a currency which is pegged to something that is measurable and finite, not a currency that's just a very roulette chip. Yeah, something tangible. And likewise, you're suggesting a global report card. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I, the difficulty with all of these things, climate and, and, and poisons, uh, climate and food and nuclear and, and so on, is that people don't know how dangerous the situation that we're in. So I'm proposing that we create a world report card, which could be on the side of your cereal packet, it could be in, in your mobile phone, it could be on the nightly news, like the Dow Jones Index. So this is a simple index that tells you whether today the human species got a bit safer or a bit more into danger as a result of all of these actions. A simple number, it, it's put together obviously by, by a complex scientific algorithm, but it reflects that it's likely the doomsday clock that the University of Chicago runs, the nuclear threat. Uh, it's like that, only it reflects the sustainability of the human position on planet Earth. And that way it's giving people daily information as to, as to how much risk we're actually in or how much better things are getting. Well, that's, that's a fascinating concept. Well, with the two or three minutes that we have left, tell us a little bit more about this self-delusion concept and sleepwalking to disaster as one of our greatest risks and what you think we can do about it. 
Well, Voltaire said that the human beings, you know, have the have the capacity to believe in anything they they jolly well like to believe in, and, and he's right. So, so we invent our own realities, and of course, those realities have no bearing in real reality. And the danger with the with the existential risk that I'm talking about is that people say to themselves, "Oh, we needn't worry about that, or we can't worry about that, or God will fix it, or there'll be some other something will save." That's not true. You can you look at the numbers, you look at the facts that I put together in that book, you realise that we are in a very dangerous place and we need to get rid uh, otherwise we're not going to solve the problem. So overcoming this, this tendency to self-delusion is absolutely critical. And, you know, there are people like uh, Pope Francis, for example, in, in Laudato, see, he's, he says that you've got to look after the environment because if you don't, there will be nowhere for you to live. You know, the environment, the clean air, the clean water will not be there to support you. It is, that's good theology and it's good science. So right. we need these realistic appraisals of the situation that we're in. Otherwise, we are going to you know, sleepwalk to disaster. Yeah, another way of putting that is there's no, there's no jobs on a dead planet, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But I, I think people are still inclined to pass the idea of a dead planet rather than accepting it is a possible consequence of what we're doing. Okay, folks. Well, is, this is a very important book. I recommend highly that people read it, Surviving the 21st Century by Julian Cribb. Julian, thank you so much for visiting with us this past hour. Um, we will have this on iTunes next week, uh, an edited version of this show. So if you missed it, you can catch it, and or if you were intrigued, you can listen to it again. And I'll hand it back over to you, Rob. Thank you. That was. Uh, <laughs> I was just sitting here in awe listening to all of that with Chris. It was just amazing to me. Uh, great to have you on the show, Julian. I thought that I was doing a great step by growing some basil on my windowsill, but now I've got to look a little <laughs> farther in the future. <laughs> oh, we got to start somewhere, I guess. So that's uh, the windowsill is a good start. <laughs> Lisa, you can control. And, and, and by the way, you guys, you're absolutely right. Nobody drinks Fosters in Australia. They're all drinking Corona. <laughs> <laughs> Long neck buds. <laughs> right. Well, Julian, thank you very much for appearing on the show. And Inge, you did a great job as usual. And uh, to our listening audience and uh, anybody who's watching us, we'll give you a big wave. And uh, Chris is giving a bigger wave. How did you get the bigger wig? Hey, get closer to the camera. <laughs> yeah, I want the jacket. I bought you back. No. <laughs> Just kidding. We got new jackets today. Yeah, we so, did. New jackets. So, so we'll, have to, we'll have to show them off at the IA show. Anyway, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We do appreciate it, and we'll, we'll see and hear you next week. And remember, the most important thing you got to do is think, think blue. blue. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone.